welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. Also, welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Keith Billick and I did a crossover podcast back in early October at IBMA in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you're not already subscribed, go follow Picky Fingers wherever you get your podcasts. Get Up in the Cool is listener-funded. Shout out to Eddie, last name withheld, who just signed up to support the show on Patreon. Thank you so much. To those of you who haven't yet signed up to support Get Up in the Cool, just go to patreon.com slash getupinthecool and pledge an amount that you can sustain. Thanks. Stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how to keep up with the Picky Fingers Banjo podcast, but first, here's my interview and jam with Keith Billick. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Uh, Keith Billick, welcome to Get Up in the Pool. No, Cameron DeWitt, welcome to the Picky Fingers. <laughs> no, you hang up. <laughs> you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> no, this Fun. is awesome. Crossover episode. Yeah. <laughs> I've only done one of these ever. It was with uh, Charlie Walden. Uh, I don't know if, you, if he's like a Missouri fiddler, lives in Chicago, and super fun. But uh, yeah, we we were planning on uh, doing something like this back in 2020 when I was planning on coming to Earful of Fiddles. Something interrupted teach. it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, these know. things fall through. We got busy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really great to finally do this, and I will say that when I started getting the idea for the podcast, you know, you, you scout out what the potential competition or redundancy might be, or, or is there even a, a niche for this? Yeah. And so when I searched banjo podcasts initially, yours is, was like the main one. Oh, thank God it showed up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Easily. SEO and all that. And then, and then fortunately, um, you know, identif- I identified that we would be different enough that it was totally, totally cool, but... Oh, I appreciate yeah. you putting that thought into it, and I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you have a, well, yours is a banjo podcast, and the banjo is expansive, yeah. and covers so much. There's enough. Yeah. Enough room. <laughs> so, why why did you want to make Picky Fingers? What led you to want to be an interviewer There's about a- banjos? I don't. I didn't necessarily want to be an interviewer, but I wanted the podcast to exist. There's. It, That's a great answer. <laughs> there, there's this uh, tome in the in the bluegrass banjo world. I don't know if you'll be familiar. It's called Masters of the Five String Banjo. It's this no I'm thick not. book, maybe like four hundred pages, and it was written in the eighties. And it was it's in depth interviews with a lot of like the legendary. Yeah. Players, Ralph Stanley, J.D. Crow, Earl Scruggs, you know, just all the people that everyone loves in the, yeah. in the bluegrass banjo world. And there's like this database of the microphones that everyone uses and the wow. types of bridges that everyone uses. Like, That's amazing. It's amazing. And so for the longest time, it's it's been in the back of my mind that, wow, there really needs to be a volume two of this because it's, from, it's in the 80s and there's been so many great players yeah. since then. So that's one thing. And then another thing was I listened to a lot of podcasts. I had this crappy, like, day job where I listened to things, and, of course, I wanted to hear that, and that was always my goal. Like, I need to hear this Masters of the Five-String Banjo type of information in podcast form. And after a while, it kind of occurred to me that, like, okay, well, I know some things about banjo. I have microphones. I was a sound guy for a while. I was a banjo salesman for a while. I worked at Elderly for a long time. So I know about banjos and about gear. Like, I have enough hands in different areas that I thought I might be able to actually, like, speak intelligently to enough people yeah. to make it work. So I just tried. Yeah. And uh, I'm still doing it, like, three-ish years later. That's great. So how about you? I'm, I'm curious to, to well, what you were trying to accomplish. I, I will absolutely answer that. But first I wanted to say, uh, oh, this is going to be hilarious. Okay. Just, no, uh, not that what I'm about to say, but just like us trying to cross fire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be like a fun little wrestling match. Yeah. Uh, banjo people, sometimes it's hard to say whether they like the idea of banjos and talking about banjos 
more or like actual banjo music more. And I think uh, those things go hand in hand because there's so much like, um, it's like the banjo is just like avatar for all of this. It's this totem for all of this. I mean, it's literally like <laughs> that. <Yeah. laughs> but, uh, you know, people project so much onto it and then like want to think about the instrument just as much as the music. And I think that's really smart that you're like, yeah, like... Uh, I want to make a version of this tome. <laughs> well, I think I think we've all probably witnessed it with people who are just really into or like really n- love to nerd out about anything. Yes, that they might feel isolated in their everyday life, but when they finally get around somebody who's really on the same wavelength as yeah. them, the floodgates open, and yeah. they love talking about whatever it is, you know, Star Trek or something. Yeah. And I think it's a lot, the, you know, the same way. And But at the same time, each interview, as you know, it goes different. Some people do talk a lot about it, and some people don't. Some, some yeah. people, you need to maybe pull the information you want. Yeah, out. it's like some people talk more with their instrument, and some people talk sure. more with their voice. And yeah. if you get them to stop talking, they'll play their instrument. And, and then, then you know, everywhere in between, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious... To you about uh, we we discussed right before we started recording what I like to get out of people. Yes. What uh, what's your take on what you what, do? You have a goal going into each interview of what what is the essence that you want people to li- listeners to come away with from from each interview? Yeah. Well, I will say, and I've got my record saying this before, <laughs> but and I think it's still true that like this podcast started just as a pretense to get to like play music with people that I like (laughs) you know and uh and have like a hang with them especially because like I I don't know I almost never maybe I never have I don't know I prefer not to send people away at festivals who want to come and jam I just don't have the stomach for it I can't do it um and I and I prefer not to and but I also really like having intimate conversations and jams, one-on-one, small group. And it sort of serves as a way for me to, at festivals, have that really focused experience with someone. And uh, when I'm not at a festival, have a pretense to invite myself over to someone's house and play music with them. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, like, kind of the main thing, is that, like, I had a very, you know, pure, but ultimately, like, self-centered, like, uh, reason for doing the show. It's like, I want to, like have a good time <laughs> so yeah and and now that now that i'm thinking about it a little more i guess an additional reason for me was that i i was playing and performing pretty regularly for quite a while but i i hit a spot where i wasn't i didn't have a band i had yeah. a family and job and, and stuff like that and I, w- I was feeling like i really just needed to make sure that i was still part of that yeah. world and still Relevant, not like I have an, an ego about it, but it, that's like what I want to do. It's part of my therapy is to be involved in, in music, you know. Yeah. So it's my way of keeping my foot in the door, even if I don't necessarily have as many performing opportunities or recording opportunities. And, I, and I'm always working on those things yeah. too. But it, it was just that. That's another side benefit in addition to what I said. Yeah, yeah, that make that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think. I maybe was in sort of a similar place where uh, 
I was just getting into old time music actually, and then I'd only been playing for a few years. And uh, I was like trying to start bands with people, and it was like kind of it's hard in general to start a band. Um, yeah. But you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do with it, if I wanted to do anything with it other than just do it for fun, you know, and also feeling like, yeah, stalling out in my own sort of musical career and, and being like, well, I listen to a lot of interview podcasts and I feel like I could just do that, but just musical right. interview people as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. Same. But I guess in terms of like, um, what I'm trying to get out with people like for the listener, uh, I want to figure out what is personal about my guests relationship to old time music or whatever genre we're playing in. It's not always old time. Sometimes I'll have a Scandi guest on or um, uh, Bluegrass, you know, or whatever. Skin naming, is that what you said? Yeah. I want to perform interest and like a sort of like pleasure oriented interrogation, you know, and, and my goal is, can I, I think my ultimate goal is, can I get my guest to say something about themselves that maybe they would struggle to say about themselves in another context, like, uh, and then like enjoy what they said. And then also secondary would be like the listener getting to have that sort of information and feeling the thing that I think is cool about podcasts is like, it's like a weird sort of parasocial friendship that I think is really cool. Is like, my favorite podcast is like, I, when I, when I listen to them, it's like, Oh yeah, those are like my buds. I hang out with them every uh-huh. week. I don't say anything, <laughs> you know, but like I've enjoyed so much being on that end of it. Cause I, that's the main media that I consume is listening to podcasts and like, I like having relationships with people and I try to have it not be problematic, but you know, like (laughs) that parasocial like relationship or my like check in with these people, even though they don't know me, uh, is like meaningful to me. And it's so intimate because it's like, I'm listening in earbuds and it's like, they're right next to me and talking right into my brain. And like, I don't know. I think that like that sort of, fly on the wall kind of like energy is really exciting and typically like I like to just with my guests like have the conversation that I want to have with them as if the mic wasn't there and yeah. then um, ideally everyone's cool with the co- with that going public sometimes we have the conversation and I take things down because they get too real or too intense oh, wow. you know but like that's the conversation I want to have yeah. with these people you know if they'll have it with me and it's not I don't want it to ever be coercive, but, you know, I I think there's some sort of weird voyeurism exhibition thing that I think has some sort of benefit to the medium that's, like, complicated, but I think it's cool. And then, in all time community, I get to meet these people who, like, listen to the show, which is also cool. And then, right. it, and then it makes it real, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, it, it uh, what? connects the circle yeah. or something. It like just that. turns it into a social relationship uh-huh. instead of just parasocial. <laughs> How, to what degree do you view yourself as uh, providing like an archivist type of uh, service? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, more and more. I think once people 
once I started hearing people say like, it's important to me that you're archiving this stuff. I was like, Oh, oh thank God. Good. Yeah. I guess I'm doing that. And then I think I've had two guests die now mm-hmm. and neither of them were profoundly recorded. Um, I think one of them may be, may have been like under or unrecorded. Wow. And then one of them maybe had an album or two, I think. So your um, show is literally the only It might be, or one of the only, yeah. and it's certain, and, and I think in both cases, it's the only candid kitchen music making, wow. which I think is very different than, um, tells you different things than studio. And it's also different making. hearing some, even if it's the same words, it's also different hearing it in somebody's voice rather than reading it. Yeah. In a magazine or online, which which is, I don't know, just it's just a lot cooler. What 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 about for you? Have you gotten that sort of? Do you feel like you're accomplishing your goal of making that tome that you set out to do? And like, is it's like yes, this is the show I like want to be making? And yeah, 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 I really do. And it's uh, it's heady when you take a step back and think about how many people I've talked to that I really look up to and are heroes in, in my music community uh, and I've, I'm always flattered that they want to have anything to do with with me and being involved in it but you know, I've had very few people not want to be and I don't know that I expected that at first do you know what I mean? yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely so, it's not that I'm not always trying to improve even more. I think my main weakness, I sort of, you know, I listed before, like, I'm an okay enough banjo player. I know somewhat about uh, banjos and gear. I know the music pretty well. I think my main weak point was actually as an interviewer. I've never gone to journalism school. That's yeah, nothing I ever, like, tried to study. Yeah. I just threw myself into it. So that's more and more what I am trying to, like, develop as a skill. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience of listening to yourself talk to people. Well, I edit it, so... And then you're just like, oh, my God, I said that? And, like, oh, why would I ask this question? Or, like, oh, I didn't catch that they were teeing me up for this, you know? Yeah, missed follow-ups. Right. Have you have you started like changing the way that you interact with people outside of recording them just because you've been listening so much? Have you learned about how you talk to people? Yes, yes, yeah. that's awful. That's <laughs> awful. You learn your own vocal tics yeah. quite well, and then when you hear them, hear yourself say them any other time, it, it just you know it grates on you. It's really bad. <laughs> and I think I even. I may have even said this in a podcast. So I, I, I trained myself to stop saying like as, as an audible pause. Yeah, yeah. But instead of now speaking in a nice, flowing, continuous sentence, there's just holes where I would have said like. So now I <laughs> tend to talk like Captain Kirk, and I don't have any pauses. So that's my current frustration yeah. with myself. But, but even... Not even as much the, the, the pauses, like I just said, but like just the art of interviewing, yeah. the types of questions, how to get people 
comfortable, and that that's something that I'm still just very, very new at. Yeah. So, I have a lot to learn. Yeah, I... I hope to continue to get better at it. Uh, I think when I started it, I was like, no, I'm good at talking to people. I'm a social, social person. This will be easy. And then I was like, oh, uh, when I'm not having a smooth interaction with someone, where I, when I have when my speaking style or social style doesn't isn't completely compatible with someone just in the wild, yeah. Uh, that will kind of solve itself. You know, like if we're at a party, we'll go talk to other people or go do other stuff. But in an interview, <laughs> you, you can't go anywhere. It's a little more You're right there. And yeah. then someone has to, you know, meet the other person where they're at or meet halfway. And it's like, that's what interviewing is. That's your job, right? Yeah. It's like, you can't just be charismatic. You have to like, uh, know how to adapt who you are. Going back to what you said about you just wanted an excuse to jam with people yeah. who, whose music you dug. That was part of, I think, my original concept, is that I wanted to do that. And somewhere along the lines, I think I got just too sheepish. Mm. About, like I felt like I was already, and maybe I shouldn't feel like this. Maybe I'm just too Midwestern, and I don't want to inconvenience anybody any more than I absolutely have to. But uh, I don't know. I just felt like I was already asking a lot of mm. people to, to take their time out and to talk with me. And then I felt like it added a level of like presumptuousness of, like, now you have to, to play with me. What, you know, uh, let's play music together. Yeah. Is that silly for me to think that way? Because I, I admire that you do that, and I think you do awesome. <laughs> Thank and you I'm, so And much. I'm jealous, because that's what I wanted to do. Well, but I, 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 think you should ju- I think you should just do it. Okay. And see what happens. Uh, but, I mean, to, you're saying, is that silly? And I think that's actually a very reasonable attitude to have. <laughs> and I think my attitude about it has been... I don't know, like maybe even like a little out of touch and then it's just sort of worked worked out. But like, even though like I'm a non-binary person, I was raised with a lot of, you know, male privilege. And I also was for a, a very long time only child and had like a lot of golden boy kind of stuff thrown at me and my families. And like, you know, just like, yeah, I've had like an enormous amount of sort of like privilege and too much encouragement that a lot of people in a lot of my shared demographics uh, <laughs> have. Yeah. And I think I just... So you're I, entitled is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> I think I just have been writing on that and then doing my best to check and make sure like that, you know, <laughs> that people don't feel taken advantage of or like they're being asked to do so much. But also, you know, yeah, just like trusting like, yeah, people will say no if they don't want to. And... If I think that maybe they won't say no, I try to detect whether or not they are trying to say no. It was a soft no. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It just... Has that happened? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've been amazed at how many people are just totally down to, like, do this. I, I didn't think I'd be able to keep it going this long every week. Yeah, what are you up to? You're in the several hundreds. Yeah, 260-something at the time of recording this, yeah. 
it's yeah. weekly, right? Yeah. I, back when I had like a full time job, I would you know take Christmas off and stuff, but yeah. or take a little break. But like more or less, it's been going you know Dang. five years. So I feel like I'm always right up against the wall, just trying to. I, mine's Me too. every other week. <laughs> mine's every other week. Mm. Do you feel like you are in any danger of running out of people to talk to? That's a great question. You know, I think at a certain point I was like, okay, the show's been going on long enough that I could just loop through the same set of a hundred people and it would stay fresh. <laughs> you have had a few repeats. And right? I have, yeah. yeah. Like Jake Blunt has been on, like, yeah. he's been on twice uh, this week um, <laughs> as like a, a guest host and as like a, um, a part of a group. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's not the main guest, but he's been on a bunch. He's one of my closest friends. Um, and then, you know, whatever city I'm living in, I will inevitably call on those people, you know, like, Hey, like I need to record someone. Let's just hang out and play some tunes, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, I'll Do have you move around on. quite a bit. No. Um, just like I started in Philly and I live in Portland now and I'm staying in Portland, Oregon now. Um, yeah. but, uh, in those times when I lived in Philly, Chris Dalnadar was a local fiddler there that I loved playing with. And I was in a band with at, at one point and, I don't know, he's on three or four times, and the Hawkinson sisters have been on multiple times in Portland, and Joel Brown, and Colin Stackhouse. So, yeah, uh, I love having people on more than once, especially if they're, like, my buds, or if they have other things to say, or projects that they're working on. Yeah, Yeah, so, yeah. What what about you? Are you concerned about running out of banjoists who want to be interviewed? No, just because, you know... Time tends to make more banjoists, for one thing. That's a great point. Uh, so if I stall long enough, no, I, I have no shortage, <laughs> and I and I've recently branched out to start doing more clawhammer players. Oh, right. For on. the longest time, it was just bluegrass. Did you not want to do clawhammer players? It's not. I didn't want to do clawhammer players, but it was more just out of my own naivety. Okay, uh, yeah. I didn't think I could ask... I don't know the repertoire. I don't know the major players or bands yeah. in that world. I don't know intelligent questions to ask. Right. So I was. I just was feeling... Um, there's no way I could prepare as well for that as, as I feel like I can prepare for mm. people who I'm more familiar with. Or Do you feel more prepared now for that? No, but okay. I, I guess I'm willing to just take the chance yeah and so so far it's gone great maybe I've just lucked out and had really wonderful players and I just I I make it clear to them right off the bat that uh, I have some level of ignorance and I just try to listen to their music enough to know to see what catches my ear and maybe ask them about that like oh that that song seems to have a lot of cool techniques and I don't know what they are but yeah Tell me, so yeah. What the hell did just right. happened? <laughs> right. That's easy question. To, you can always ask. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? What was that? Explain yourself. Sometimes I'll say. I've said that too. <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. You gotta have that, like you know, uh, adversarial yeah. relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we Are, play another tune? Yeah. Oh, just Sturgeon. Yeah. Great. Can you play that in A. a. All right. Hopefully, hopefully we kind of play this the same. Yeah. We'll see if we have the. 
Jam. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you know Jeff Sturgeon. Do they play that in bluegrass circles? No. Yeah, well, thanks Not for really. picking I, an old-time I don't even tune. know why I know it. Yeah. Just, I picked up a few of those for some reason. So how did you get started playing the banjo? Damn it! <laughs> I, got, I got started playing the banjo because in college I went to MSU and one of my uh, best friends was from Mobile, Alabama. And she was moving her mom out of a house that her mom had lived in for like 20 years. And I, w- I had already been a guitar player, so she knew I was into playing guitars and stuff like that. And she found an old banjo at her mom's house as they were moving out that I don't even think she knew was there. Mm. Uh, but in the process was like, oh, Keith uh, likes playing instruments. I'll, I'll bring this back to him. And oh, you're in Portland now, right? Yeah. Are you familiar with the restaurant called Co Queen? No. Or something like that. Oh, what is that? Okay, so this friend of mine, she's she's become like a world class like beard award winning chef, and she's worked at like fancy restaurants cool. in New Orleans and Paris and San Francisco, ah. and and now she has her own place in Portland. I'll check it out. Which you should totally go to every once in a while. I'll her. go to a fancy restaurant. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, she's the best. But anyway, so she she brought me a banjo. So it literally came to me. I had never considered uh, playing it, but but she brought it back. When when was this? This was while you were in college. at MSU. At MSU, yeah. Uh, so like year two thousand ish, something like that. When I was twenty one, is when I got started. So so it came to me, and I I just fell in love with it right away. I started playing, and I'm sure pissed off a lot of my college roommates. But there was actually a pretty supportive community. There was sort of like a folk sure. uprising kind of thing. Like there was a, a really popular local band that did a lot of like, um, you know, they were a popular bar band, but they kind of did a leftover salmon type of thing where they okay, did like yeah. Cajun music and bluegrass and stuff. So it was kind of like a cool music again. Yeah. In my community. So right not on. only did I enjoy playing it, but I, I actually saw an avenue. Because I was an okay guitar player, but sure. I wasn't I wasn't going to be like the best guy in town, but maybe I could be the, the banjo guy. Yeah, town. right on. And yeah, there wasn't really one of those. So. I, I do love the banjo, and I love playing the banjo, but I think even more than that, I love just playing music with people. So any... You saw like maybe there was an opportunity for you to fill a specific kind of role yeah. uh, as a banjo guy Yeah. when maybe there was a surplus of guitar guys. Yeah, and, and I mean, another case in point was like even after I started getting pretty serious about the banjo, I joined a Pink Floyd tribute band, not playing banjo, playing like guitars and saxophones and keyboards and all that stuff. And I didn't particular, you know, I, I was a banjo player by that point. I didn't particularly, I like Pink Floyd, but I didn't love Pink Floyd. And I didn't want to go back to playing guitar, but it was an opportunity to play, like, really cool rock and roll shows. Yeah. And so I was willing to to do that just to be a part of, yeah. like, putting on a cool show. And I, I just liked being a, a part of things. I appreciate and relate to that. <laughs> yeah. When did you start playing, and, and how did... How did you find that? Oh, I think it was, you know, kind of kind of similar in some ways. You know, just like I was playing guitar. And, was this in Philly? Uh, no, I grew up in Oregon. And um, oh. I picked up the banjo. I actually, 
my first kind of banjo mentor, not my first teacher, but my first person who like really like gave me music to listen to and tried to steer me towards trad music. Uh, if for no other reason than it might better inform my playing and, you know, and yeah. my whatever music I decided to make, um, was Bill Jolliffe. Uh, you may know Jake Jolliffe. the His man. Dad? Yeah. I guess I knew him at the time to be maybe one of the only... I grew up Quaker, and I went to George Fox University, and George Fox is the founder of Quakerism. Oh. Uh awful school in, in terms of like you know it's a conservative Christian school and like they uh, are up to some nonsense there and it seems sometimes to be getting worse however Bill Jolliffe was uh, my poetry professor and I studied American Lit with him uh-huh. and I took a banjo independent study with him and he was one of the I think one of the, the Quakers one of the few actual Quakers there, and then one of the few people that I knew to be a Quaker that actually, I think, valued what <laughs> and and walked the walk, you know. Yeah, about I, what I that, wanted to ask yeah. you about this anyway. So you said it's it's a Quaker school, but then you said it's really conservative Christian. Did you say that? And yeah, explain to me the that 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 seems inconsistent <laughs> to me. So how does Quakerism fit into conservative? Ah, uh, yeah. Christian? I mean, it's a whole it's a whole thing. So like. I don't know what happened, but it's like not, it's not a Quaker school anymore. And there happened to be a few Quaker kind of like communities in the school or a few, like few representatives that are among the staff and some leadership, but mostly it's just sort of like a mainline, like conservative Christian, not the worst. It's not like a Westboro Baptist vibe right, there right, by right. any means, you know, they're, uh, I think they want to appear uh, very accepting and, and, you know, and they'll go to great lengths to talk about how much they care about their, like, you know, trans students who they won't live where they, who they won't let live where they want to and yeah. things like that, you know. Um, but Bill Jolliffe is really cool and uh, was a great professor and mentor and, like, would, you know, talk to me about my claw hammer playing and three finger playing when I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do Were that. You? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, my first teacher was Michinobu Imori, who was the double reads like adjunct or maybe even just guest professor teacher at, uh, at George Fox in the music program. Like he mostly taught double reads and I took a semester of banjo with him cause he happened to be yeah, a banjo player. He learned in Japan and, uh, from like a book and recordings then came over and people were like, Wow, you sound great. <laughs> you sound like a West Virginia clawhammer player. You know, he's like, yeah. Oh, he, he, and, and he played clawhammer. Yeah, and he played clawhammer. He played plectrum style. He played three oh, finger. Wow. He played everything. And he just gave me like a sample platter of like, here's all the stuff you could do. You figure out what you want to do. And yeah, yeah, he's a really cool guy. He uh, he he would wear these uh, these button down white uh, shirts that he had tie-dyed and like you and he was like a you know oboe player and a banjo player and like he was like he's a character that's a really awesome i should image. reconnect with him <laughs> he's probably still in portland so yeah, yeah that sounds totally awesome so it's not yeah sounds pretty similar Pick, picked it up in college i guess yeah i guess a lot of those details are really different but like i was doing songwriting and banjo uh, guitar playing and i was like oh i want to like 
play banjo because uh, it seems like it isn't as ubiquitous and like I might serve some different functions in musical yeah. settings and you know uh, little did I know that, like, so, you know, when I eventually get into playing old-time music, like, there's so many banjo players, you know, and usually that's what there's too many of in a jam, in my experience, you know. Yeah. Not that I have any issue with that. I love a, jam, a banjo full jam, but, you know. So, so something, one of the things that really fascinates me about your show... Okay. ...is, is your apparent ability to pick up on... You know, you, you get half a dozen tunes thrown at you every week, and it's really impressive how well you seem, seem to adapt your playing into, into all of it. Thanks. Like, it's, it's great. Uh, to what do you attribute your ability to do that, or, or is there more, like, behind-the-scenes stuff than maybe the listeners realize? Yeah, so when I first started, I would, like, I had, like, this, like, Google form that I would have my guests fill out, you know, and I thought that every episode would be, like, edutainment and, you know, that I would have time to practice each tune before I'd be totally ready and that the conversations would be about, like, a specific region of, you know, like, I'd have, like, Harry Bullock on and we would talk about Mississippi fiddle tunes, you know, or whatever. And then eventually it was like, well, that's not sustainable and there's all these other people that I want to interview that would never fill out a Google form in their life yeah. and uh, cannot be made to commit to a tune list. Um, and eventually I figured out, uh, oh, and then also like don't have anything particular to say other than they just want to have a cool conversation and hang and play tunes. And that's great too, you know, but as far as learning tunes goes, uh, you know, it used to be more like we'd have like a jam beforehand uh, just to sort of warm up, get to know each other musically, and yeah. then I would hit record. And then um, a lot of the time it would be first take, and then sometimes it would be like, I don't know, sometimes it, if it was like a really hard tune, it would be like, you know, four or five, you okay. know, times of me struggling through it. But anymore, what we generally do on the show is like what we're doing now today, which is just like, we'll try out the tune. And then with the understanding that maybe that's a dry run where I get, I figure out how the tune basically goes and I just try to get to the point where I'm not being distracting. Uh, or if I am being distracting from my guest playing, it's because I'm doing a fun thing that hopefully my guest will respond to. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, But not just like, wow, Cameron's... Bless their heart. They're trying so hard. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, I don't want it to be that. Sometimes it is, inevitably. But yeah, just doing the show for over and over and over and you know, learning six tunes a week, uh, learning heavy air quotes, you know, but, uh, but then I would say before that, like I went to school for music and I did ear training and music theory and stuff, but I would say the biggest thing that probably had an impact outside of just playing a lot of old time music on my old time music would be, um, I had this choir director, Vance Seeley, uh, who in, in high school, who every day in choir, and I was in multiple choirs, so sometimes it was multiple times a day, he would have us do movable dough solfege exercises. Does this mean anything to you? Barely. So, like... So, like, solfeggio yeah. is... You go ahead and say it. <laughs> sure, yeah. Everyone knows <laughs> some dough a deer, a female right, deer, right. etc. Um, it's that scale. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Um in 
Europe and other places, you know, they use a fixed dough system, which means they don't say A, B, C, D, F, G. You know, it's like C is dough, and it's always dough, you know. Uh, so that's what they use to refer to notes. Or maybe they'll use C instead of T or whatever. There's different versions of it. But in the U.S., when we use solfege, we use movable dough, which means that dough mean can be whatever we want it to be. It's the root. It's the first note of whatever scale that you're in. So um, it's great for learning relative pitch and learning your intervals. And uh, we would do exercises in that. And the one that probably helped the most, other than like sight reading in solfege, would be uh, this one where we would go... Um, do do di do do di re ra do do di re ri re ra do do di re ri mi fa pi so si la li ti do ti te la le so se fa mi me re ra do. You know, we go up and down to each one, and then we go do do ti do do ti te di do do ti te la li ti do, and then do ti te la le so se fa mi me re ra do di re ri mi fa pi so si la li ti do. And we, you know, run out of breath, but we would like go over every chromatic note. And as long as you're staying in relatively diatonic music, um, it falls apart, I think, when you try to do jazz. Uh, but if you're sticking to music that stays in one key at a time, then... Uh, like most old time. Yeah, most like most old time. Yeah. yeah right. Especially, yeah, old time is 90%, you know, uh, major pentatonic scale. Right. And then some major scale. And then some other modes. And modes of the pentatonic scale, but it's pretty simple, you know, in terms of you don't have to change keys constantly. And yeah. So I just, yeah, I was like boot camp for four years, you know, just like learning how diatonic music works and building a virtual instrument in my brain and my voice that could serve as a bridge between me and whatever instrument I was studying. So yeah, but even knowing the 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 relative notes that you're working with. If you hear a fiddle tune and you know exactly what notes those are, at least relatively, yeah. laying it out on a banjo fingerboard is still like an extra step. Yeah. At least to me. Totally, uh, yeah. You know, most of, and, and especially once you get into the fact that, that you old time players have a whole bunch of different right. tunings available. So something like Farewell Tryon. Yeah. I don't know, are you using double C or are you using drop just drop C? I, and, I and decided, that might be a question that you don't well, know yeah. right away. Like when you even when you hear the tune, you don't know if it's gonna lay out better on one or the other. Like yeah, Maybe. when we were when we were doing like a sound check, uh, I was trying to play out a standard tuning for Farewell Tryon. It had been a while since I did it. There's a bunch of big position switches in that tune because it has a huge range so i was trying to play along in standard i was like you know what i already know how to do this in double c like mountain tuning some people call it so i'm just going to do that instead and so that's what i did and it worked out fine um it's still been a while since i played it but uh you know i try to simplify the amount of tunings that i use so typically i'll use standard g for a lot of stuff if i can um i'll use standard g for with, you know, changing the fifth string, of course. Um, I'll use it for G, for C, for D, for F, for B flat, uh, for A minor, for different minor modes. Uh, and then I'll use standard A for A, any A minor, a, any A mode. Um, sometimes for D, in a pinch, I'll use it for G if I'm playing a tune that, like, I was playing... Um, a, uh, an, a traditional like New Mexico tune 
that changed keys three times in each section. And then there, yeah, there's a section in like A, G, and D. And I forget what I did with it, but like I went, I had to figure out, is it going to be better for me to be in A tuning and then like play G in A tuning or the other way around? Right. I don't remember what I did, but you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's some amount of uh, translation that needs to happen yeah. from the sound of it to the mechanics. Yeah. And then uh, I'll use double C or double D for just like straight up old time raging stuff okay. that where maybe I can't fully bang away and do the thing that I'm supposed to do unless I'm in one of those tunings that's very open. You know, comfort zone more or less. Yeah. Sounds like. Yeah. Well, it depends. If I'm playing old time, sometimes that's the best option, yeah. and then I have a little bit less flexibility with it because those are super unintuitive. Uh, tunings, I think, especially for moving past the fifth fret, because anytime you have a major second between the first and second strings, that's the most common uh, movement, you know, a, a whole step, you know, in music, most movement in a melody is going to be a major second, so that means you have to like lay down a bar, break your finger position, you know, or do something, or skip a note. What the hell's going on out there? I, I think they heard our last tune in their chair. <laughs> so like a major, a major second, a whole step is the most common, you know, movement in a melody, which means that if you're playing it on the first two strings, then you have to like lay down a bar or break your left hand position in order to play that melody or start skipping notes you got to skip notes all the time in old-time music. That's part of the job of uh, playing claw hammers. You're not supposed to play all of the notes most of the time, or you're supposed to play different pathways, so that's expected. But anytime you skip a note, you have to sort of make a decision, and it requires a certain amount of sort of like musical wisdom to know which note is important and which note do you skip. That deci decision-making is really hard, especially if you're navigating a different tuning, and then physically it's harder. So I try to, like, simplify. When I can, I'll play in, uh, yeah, in the standard, st standard G. Um, yeah. And I found it's really helpful in playing other traditions because they use different pathways, and there is a weird kind of logic to standard G tuning, you know? If you're playing music that's based at all in triads or scales... You know, you can learn how those shapes fall. And uh, most of the time you only have to play, you know, one or two notes consecutively on a single string. Um, and uh, it's not too hard to navigate uh, in this tuning. Can you think of the, the tune that has been suggested by your interview subject over these years and all these episodes that was the most difficult for you uh. to adapt to probably that episode with Lone Pinon where they were doing traditional New Mexican music where I was having to learn yeah New Mexican folk music which was like I had to change keys a bunch mm -hmm. and then I had to play these lines that had different pathways and then old time music you know probably either that or some of the nickel harpa stuff that I had to play oh yeah um, every once in a while I'll get asked to play a jig and those are really hard with claw oh, hammer I, yeah that's kind of a nightmare. Uh, but yeah, that one tune from Lone Pinon, I don't remember what it's called, uh, but uh, that was really hard. I, and they gave it to me in advance because it was going to be for a live 
audience at this festival. So like when that happens, um, when I get to do that, which I love doing, um, I'm like, send me the tunes in advance. I, yeah. First takes only. (laughs) Why does New Mexico have such a unique folk music tradition? Is, is this like a, a Native American type of tradition or like a, a Mexican influenced? Like I, I, I haven't sure. heard what you're talking about, so I don't. Sure. Yeah. I would say I at least project commonalities between a lot of Southwest U.S. and Mexican music. Yeah. And to some extent. No, I mean, basically it stops there. Then it, once you get to, like, Guatemala and Colombia, it's totally different. Um, not that I've had any of those musicians on my shows. I've just listened to that music for fun because it rules. Uh, but, like, Mexican and then Southwest music. And then t- maybe in some ways, to some extent, some indigenous U.S. and Canada, you know, area music. I can at least project some commonalities between all of that uh-huh. stuff. So I think that there's some stuff there. I can't necessarily speak on that, but um, I would say that in this case, Lone Pignon's whole, whole thing is that they play hyper-regional music that is crooked and quirky in the and way... And changes keys. And, yeah, and changes keys. And yeah. <laughs> it was the specificity of it that from what I understand, they were telling me after the, like while we were all hanging out afterwards at this festival, um, they're telling me that like mariachi music is kind of like bluegrass in that there's kind of a canon that you have to know what the canon is Mm -hmm. in order to be able to participate in it. And the idea is that you, you learn this repertoire. And as long as you know, this basic repertoire, you can kind of hang in, you can get a job anywhere. Um, but what the repertoire is made of is the old time musics of different communities and areas in, you know, the Southwest and in Mexico. And that, you know, those original versions are weird and crooked and quirky. Um, but the edges are sort of rounded off in order to make it this, um, uh, you know, interchangeable parts. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's fair to like, uh, if that's actually a good comparison to like bluegrass versus all time, but I think it's sort of a similar kind of thing maybe. So speaking of, of bluegrass, we're having this discussion during the, the IBMA yeah. international bluegrass music association convention, which you wouldn't know by the, the background music. <laughs> you will see how much is, of that comes through, which is another story altogether, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I'm curious what brought you you here, because you are an old-time music podcast, you're an old-time musician, and although there is a lot of crossover, it, it might just be, I guess, just a little bit surprising that you would want to to come here. So what, what did you view as your uh, goal, or what opportunities did you see? Uh, a lot of answers. The main and sort of first answer was just like, I missed hanging out with Jake. I hadn't, Jake Blunt. I hadn't seen him in two years oh, awesome. since Clifftop 2019, I think. And, uh, we sort of missed connections. Like I was going to try to go to Berkeley old time to hang out with him that, because that's a late September festival. And then I was going to try to see if he could come to Harry Smith for all up in Massachusetts in July. And he was busy then. And he's like, why don't you just come to IBMA? 
I know it's like a little intimidating, but like there's a lot of old time musicians here yeah. and there's, you, you know, at least have some friends. Yeah. And I was like, great. I'll just plan on doing that. I'm so starved for social stuff anyway. Yeah. And also I want to like hang out with you and, uh, be crammed in this little weird little Airbnb yeah, who all week want with this. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, uh, that was kind of like the main first reason why I wanted to come. And then also, I was like, I could interview people while I'm here. It'd be great to actually stock up some interviews instead of, I'm sure you can relate to this, living like episode to episode, you know, like who am I going to get during the, you know, during the pandemic? It's hard to stock it all up yeah, yeah. when it's all remote. So, how has it been for you? Uh, in regards to not only getting to socialize and hang with friends, yeah. but having a couple opportunities for the show. Oh yeah, it's been it's been great. Yeah, I would love to like you know maybe at some point be like invited <laughs> to like like I have a band uh, that that's the other thing, Tall Poppy String Band that has an album coming out next year, and you know it's expensive to be here. It would be yeah. great to like have a showcase or something next year, but like I would love to do it again. Because I've been having a great time. Yeah. Uh, and I've only done old-time music jams or, like, jams like this with, like, you know, old-time curious bluegrass musicians <laughs> like yourself. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. And so I haven't had to worry about, like, ruining some bluegrass jam because there's been so many great uh, old-time jams happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. no, it's been awesome. As much as I imagine you learn from all of your guests and having to, to keep up with all the repertoire that they're throwing at you. Is there some part of you that feels like that interferes with maybe your own personal, uh, not, not growth on the instrument. Cause that is, is growth having to adapt. But like, I don't know if you compose music or oh. if you were trying to forge in another direction and, and now you're pre- too preoccupied having to prepare for all these shows that is, is there another aspect that is being neglected because of that wow that's a that's a great question uh sometimes i think about that like when i'm thinking about what what do i want to be working on in my like life or in my career or in my playing and my musicianship you know like sometimes i think like oh yeah i need to like work on my fiddling so that i can like do more fiddling on the show so that i can have a more specific things to offer to like you know guitarists or banjo players instead of um, just playing banjo duets or um, guitar backing up of banjo, you know, like, yeah, I would love to be better at the fiddle, you know, and then I catch myself thinking about that and like, yeah, because that would make the show better. And then I'll come to IBMA and just like watch people shred and Uh think like, I need to get better at playing the banjo because that's like my instrument. And I want, (laughs) you know, like I want to like improve and like, uh, get to the next level, you Just know, invest, yeah, yeah. Full, <laughs> like full throttle. What do I want to be, you know, like a podcaster who's like, can jam in any sort of setting or fill yeah. any niche or do I want to like be better at like, like a higher level musician for some reason, uh, or for fun or so that I can have other kinds of opportunities, you know? So like, yeah, I, I go back and forth between all of that. Just like, Oh, I want to be a better, you know, community leader and you know, like in Portland and like be more plugged in there for old time music. Or I want to like have the podcast be better or I want to be, uh, more technically proficient on the banjo or more adventurous, you know? And, 
uh, yeah, so I don't know. I kind of chip away at all of those. I don't think I ever could just decide on one thing anyway. Like I, I typically do things in seasons. Uh, so it kind of works itself out. You've removed a lot of like the burden of decision making from yourself. Sure. Yeah, I can, I can, <laughs> I can appreciate that. And it's nice to have, it is nice to have the podcast cause it's like, that's like the, that's like an anchor, you know? And like, yeah. uh, I think I would be really stressed out if I had to like hustle to figure out each gig, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but it's like, or even, even just like socially, um, if I, you know, cliff top, when I go there, it's like the first couple of years I didn't have the podcast when I was going there and I'd have a few like freakouts and that's like not uncommon for people who go there and stay like the whole week. Freakouts about what? Just about being in a place with 5,000 people oh. and just like, I don't know, vibes and like getting in your own head about like having imposter syndrome or whatever, or like drama or like even if everything's going great, just like I need to like, I need some space. Just intense. Yeah. it's And the noise, you know, and I'm like a really extroverted person. I love being around people. I want to party. I want to stay up late. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, I can't handle that. But like having like the show is like, I have one thing that I have to like show up for every day. And that means that there's like a structure that I can sort of like fall into or adjust for or say like, Oh, I'm going to, stop partying tonight because I'm getting overwhelmed and I need to be able to like form cohesive sentences for my interview tomorrow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think for the fact that we're doing this on the last day of IBMA, uh, kudos to both of us for, absolutely. I, I think we're both mostly coherent. It seems like <laughs> not a stammering mess. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that is in the range of potential outcomes that could have happened. And, uh, yeah, I think it's okay. Well, let's play an R2. Okay. Um, there's. It's just an Avalon quick step. Oh, yeah. There's that one. Go for that one. I, I would probably. Know, uh, That's great. Thank you. 
I love that you uh, called that tune. Uh, Avalon Quickstep. It's such a, like an old time deep cut. That's so great. Yeah. I, Where'd I, you learn it? A good friend of mine uh, that I used to play a lot of music with, Derek Smith, who's a really good okay. multi-instrumentalist. You know, I don't expect you know who he is. He's, he's just a, a no. dude who I worked with, but he was, yeah. he was a really good musician and yeah. turned me on to a lot of good music. Yeah. And that was one that I think we were riding around in his truck and came on his stereo and caught our ears and we're like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to learn that one. It's that beat part. Oh, yeah. It's great. <laughs> And I love trying to teach it to people and watching their like, brains what? turn upside down, <laughs> which yeah. has happened to me on the other. So I know how they feel because I've been on the other side of that. Because there, it's something something about it to me. I think feels very natural, but it's pretty crooked. Yeah, and once weird. you get it, yeah. it, it's it can't be any other way. <laughs> no, I love that tune. Okay, let me ask you a question. You got me talking for a while. You're ahead so far in the... the All right, are we the keeping score? We have a <laughs> Only because I want to make sure that I get to ask you questions. Um, of the people you've re- interviewed, who was, like, the most, like, personally, like, oh, wow, this is a get for me. Like, this is someone who I, like, love listening to and uh it's like a personal like goal to like what it would be cool someday to get this person on the show oh yeah awesome let me i I have a few ideas but let me mentally go through my list just to make sure i'm not overlooking like a a more obvious one (laughs) right right no i just that's why i said like who's the biggest i'm not saying who's the biggest get i'm saying who's like for you that's like oh wow like this is someone i like was on my list of like someday, you know? Right. Okay. So for at least three reasons, Alan Mundy. Okay. And I don't know Alan Mundy. Alan Mundy. Uh, he's, well, he's, he's a legendary bluegrass player. He was featured in that masters of the five string banjo book. So he's been around a long time. Yeah. He's, he's played with a lot of, uh, really well-known bluegrass bands and has just influenced you know, yeah. a couple generations now of players. How did you phrase it? Who was my biggest, like biggest personal get? get. Okay. Like, so, so he was a huge influence on me when, when I started learning and, and start devouring all the music. He was, he was definitely heavy rotation in my CD collection was, was some Alan Mundy records. So, so that meant a lot. He also was the first, he, he's one of my early episodes, like episode, I don't know, four or six or something like that. So it, it was also a huge deal to me because I felt like he really validated what I was doing. And he was going, not not that I look at this purely opportunistically, but in some way, sure. the fact that Alan Mundy was on my show, yeah. gave me a bit a really uh, a nice feather in my cap going forward when you're uh, asking people and be exactly. like you could listen to an episode of the show how about Alan Mundy if Alan Mundy did yeah. it surely it's okay with yeah. for, for you to do it yeah. because who are you know <laughs> so so that was a huge deal and then my question to you about how to, to what degree you felt like an archivist hmm. Alan is up there in age yeah we, we don't have decades more of of 
being able to hang out with him and listening to his music. So it was really meaningful for me to like have a little more of him uh, on record yeah. and his yeah. voice telling his stories. And he has great stories and he's a great storyteller. So it, yeah. it turned out to be a great episode with someone who I respected, who I, I helped me in, in a yeah. lot of ways. So it, he comes to mind. Some other ones that come to mind, like Tony Trishka. I, I'm yeah. a huge fan of his. He was he was Bela Fleck's teacher for, for people who don't aren't familiar with him. So he, he hasn't had quite the acclaim as Bela, but for banjo circles, you know, he's he's right in that category of like really trailblazing kind of yeah. kind of dudes. And he's he's a big influence on me. Uh, Chris Pandolfi of the String Dusters. I've just been a personal fan of of his music for a long time. So it was it was that one was really cool. And he's a really cerebral guy. So he's a fun one to pick his brain about. He's he's one of those people who no detail is too small. Like everything he yeah. does is thought out. Yeah. And it's fun to hear what the train of thought is behind some of the things he does. Yeah. So the, I mean. In some way or another, I've enjoyed all of them, like seriously. But but those are the ones that, that come to mind, especially Alan. He's one of those people that's just universally respected, yeah. universally liked, friendly dude. So, yeah. That's so great that Alan you were able to get him on so early. And, yeah, that <laughs> was a, very confirming for you. Yeah, absolutely. That was a real sink or swim type of yeah. moment. Like if if I sent out a lot of these invites to people like Alan Mundy, and they had started either turning me down yeah. or not responding, I probably would have just given up. Yeah. My first few episodes were with really good banjo players, but they were my friends. Yeah. So they they probably felt a little obligated. Sure. And so that's fine. Sure. That that gets me started. Thanks, friends. Little proof <laughs> of concept, maybe. But he he was the first one that I had to really just come come knocking on the door and seeing what would happen. Yeah. And, and it worked out. So that gave me a lot of confidence yeah. and uh, validation. Yeah. Are there any uh, aspirational future gets? Can we manifest this now on the podcast? Like, who do you want to get on the show who hasn't been on yet? Oh, well, well there are realistic ones and there are unrealistic ones. So among the realistic ones... Uh, Bela Fleck has not been on the show. Yeah, I'm actively trying toward that, and I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously confident that that that'll happen eventually. Yeah, there are a few a few guys from the first generation, or maybe you know, depending on where you draw the lines, like second generation of like bluegrass legends. Really, hmm. uh, they're up there in age. People like Sonny Osborne and J.D. Crow. They're like octogenarians. Yeah. They don't really leave their house as much, so and they don't have anything to prove. They don't have anything to publicize. So, in other words, they they don't have much reason to just talk to this like Yankee kid who yeah. wants to come talk to them about bluegrass, and they don't leave their house. At least this is this is all secondhand. Yeah, this is, this is what I've heard is, is is the situation. So I don't I'm not holding out a whole lot of hope that uh, those will happen, but. But that would be really special. Those are the ones that come to mind. Some other ones I've I've tried a little bit for people like uh, Rhiannon Giddens. Yeah, I would love someone like that. Yeah, 
and she has proven a little bit hard to to reach. She's a busy lady. She's a busy lady, mm-hmm. and she's really popular. And <laughs> so, the, the more popular someone is, the more barriers there are yeah. to to access. Yeah, someone like that would be great. Um, th- those are the ones that that come to mind, I guess, for me. Brandon Rose ones. Yeah, I hope you. I hope you get on your show. That that would be great. I would love to listen to those interviews. Call me Bela. Call yeah. me Rhiannon. <laughs> should um, we should we play another tune? Okay. Yeah. Daily's Daily's real. Right. Okay. Two. Try my hardest. That's a that's a tricky one. Be I don't... flat out of open tuning on a tune that you're not, uh, you know, well yeah. practiced on. So, no, that's impressive. Well, that's, that's cool. cool. <laughs> uh, I love your banjo playing. I love your uh... really. Thanks. Yeah, I I'm flattered. I love yours too. I don't get to listen wow. to Three Finger very often. It's a real treat. And you, huh. um, it's one of those things that you were talking about. It's like I don't know how to put my finger on all of what's going on, but. Um, it's a it's a very particular tone on your banjo and in your technique and I don't know exactly what it is. There's like a you know, like I was just listening to is her name BB Bowness? Yeah. From Mile 12. I love and hers BB. is just like it's like a 
coffee percolator. It's like, doo, 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 doo. and it's like, and all of her ideas are like genius. Um, yeah. But like the the t- the timbre is like just so soft and like like little bubbles, and and then others are just like nasty. And I don't exactly know what it is that you're doing, but it feels really different from. Um, like the Poe Ramblin' Boys, like I also oh, heard this week, you know? Yeah, okay. Um, I know, I think maybe you're doing some more like melodic shapes and stuff as opposed to just doing roll things and you're using the rolls to fill in the spots. Yeah. Are you using those, isn't there someone named Keith who does melodic things? Uh, other than you, isn't there another Keith melodic fan? Right. There's Bill Keith. Bill Keith, that's who, what it who's, is. Who's, yeah, a, a very... Very much credited with yeah with popularizing and and developing the melodic style, uh, which it, it, when I say melodic style or scrug style, does that does that mean something to you? Yeah, isn't the like the melodic style like something like <laughs> if you wanted to play a major scale, you would go like <laughs> it's super sweaty for me to do it. it sorry, I'm in a weird tuning, but. Something like that. Right. Exactly. You're trying to get as many strings ringing at the same time as possible. Exactly. And then you, so you do these like wacky shapes. Yeah. With open strings. Really and wacky shapes. And it's, yeah. it really hurts your brain. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense. Because typically when you, if you start on a note and then you want a higher pitch. Yeah. You're either going to go up on the fret on that same string or you're going to go up a string. Right. Right. But in melodic style, often to get a higher pitch, you're going down a string. That stresses me out. (laughs) And you already are dealing with a banjo that has the highest pitch string on what would, on any other instrument, be the bass uh, section of of the strings. So all of this combines for, yeah, just some real mental (laughs) frustration at first. But but when you get good at it, you, you get like almost harp. Like, yeah. Uh, didn't do that very well. Yeah. yeah. That's where, where things can ring out. Yeah. And it's a much more fiddly yeah. type of approach, so it's it's good for playing fiddle tunes. That, yeah. That's that's usually where you hear that stuff is uh-huh. for for fiddle tune playing. Um, and to to address your your other comment. Someone like the Poe Ramblin Boys. So my, my banjo is, is set up. The the head is, I would not call it loose, but it's looser than someone like the Poe Ramblin Boys would have because they have this very bright, blistering kind of yeah. sound. Yeah. Something like that, and I'm picking very close to the bridge. Right. And it's a really common tool and, uh, you know, effective strategy is especially for playing stuff like we've been playing where i will pick much closer to the right. neck and you can hear how the tone changes you know it, it gets a lot mellower yeah so for thing you know, I, I dare say almost closer to like an open back sure yeah sound yeah yeah because a lot of that's where a lot of claw hammer players play. It's yeah, right. You have a scooped yeah. neck, and that, that's exactly why, because yeah. you, you get a more plunky effect out of it. So thanks. I, I'm a big fan of what you do. This is a real hoot to hear the 
twin yeah. uh, banjo <laughs> styles on some of these. It's yeah, there's cool. such a like, um, there's this like rhythmic game and tension between this in this kind of duet, you know, right. and, like just like the the hemiolas of like three finger banjo yeah. playing, and then the the boom chuck of <laughs> yeah, and um, claw hammer, and then trying to make them like fit together. It's it's fun. Yeah, it's and hard if, to if we had like maybe a couple more sessions or something or, or run throughs of these two yeah. and I, I i imagine we would both start to hear different things of how they can yeah. we could be the next bailiff like an abigail washburn the next <laughs> cross genre power couple market market <laughs> heard it here first uh this is normally the part in my show like before the last tune where i would say like where do you want people to go to follow you know support what you do or keep track of what you do and all that stuff. Uh, before we do that, is there, is there anything else that like you need to like ask me in order for your show, like bullet points to be taken care of? Like I'm very unregimented. I mean, I, okay, great. I, do, I do have a lot of recurring types of questions. That's just, just how it has, right. has evolved. It, it's not that I need to ask those, yeah. those questions. What I would most like to know, I, I'm I'm looking at your picks that you have. Yeah, we talked. And I gear. wanted to ask you about, yeah, 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 gear or I mean, it's unusual. Claw hammerists sometimes they'll use like a finger pick turned <clears throat> backwards or something like that. But you have, I don't know. Tell us what you have. So these are sitar misrob. Yeah, they're the finger picks that sitar players use. I guess like I haven't watched that much classical Indian music. Like I don't know if I've ever actually seen a sitar played correctly up close, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, basically if I were to describe them, I think it's one piece of wire mm-hmm. that is wrapped in such a way that there is a, um, uh, there's a, a triangle that sort of follows the shape of your finger. Um, most people, and it's perpendicular to your nail. That's the, it, it's yeah. sort of the key. Yeah, most people, when they try to put it on, they'll try to put it, like, parallel to the nail. Yeah, Yeah, but it's perpendicular to the nail, and the idea is that you can go both directions, and it'll have the same basic tone. Um, And the reason I use these is because I use up-picking in my claw hammer stroke without breaking the claw hammer motion. So, like, if you ever, like, watch a claw hammer player... You know, it, it's hard to tell what they're doing because um, it's sort of a subtractive technique, more like chiseling away than it is like, you know, like my impression is that most of the time when you're playing three finger, you move a finger when it's time to hit a string and you don't move a finger when you don't want it to hit a string. Right? Like maybe there's a little bit of like... Are, you, are we talking right hand technique now? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Economy of motion yeah. is is definitely a thing. Claw Especially hammer, once you get into really speedy bluegrass playing, any wasted movements is just... I can only imagine. Down. Yeah. <laughs> Claw hammer is uh, more like flat picking in that you, most of the time, are going bang, 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 bang. You're constantly doing this motion. Um, and, you know, just like with flat picking, when you... Uh, don't want it to sound like this. You move your hand away, but you still move your hand. Right. So claw yeah. hammer is the same way. There's like four possible... Uh, sorry, I still am in this weird tune. 
um, the string. So, like, you know, there's the people sometimes refer to it as the bumpa ditti. You know, you okay. have in each old time beat, you you can do two downstrokes, which means that you have to do an upstroke, and typically people will fill that upstroke space with a thumb. Either that's a thumb on the, uh, or I'll do it on di- on different notes so you can tell. So like that high note is my thumb. Right. You can do the thumb on the fifth string, or you can drop thumb to an inside string. Yeah. Um, so, or you can use a hammer on or a pull off in one of those spaces between your downstrokes. But your hand's always moving, right? Um, just like in a flat picker typically would. Yeah. Um, uh, but the there are some certain limitations to that. Uh, for instance, uh, drop thumbing. It can be really useful melodically um, to catch d- descending lines in eighth, eighth notes. If you count the eighth note as the shortest uh, or as the fastest note, um, some people prefer to think of that as the 16th note. Um, so like, uh, you know, you can do a line like that with a combination of drop thumbing and pull-offs. Uh-huh. Um, and obviously downstrokes. Um, but what if you want to do that line in reverse? Going it's, up, uh, ascending, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's really difficult to drop them past the uh, string that you just struck with your, let's say you're using your index finger for your downstrokes. You're, um, you're upside down at that point? Exactly. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, and the most, because, you know, Climber doesn't have an anchor. Like often I'll see bluegrass players, yeah. you know, like anchor with their pinky with their pinky. Um, usually the claw hammer technique, uh, you, you anchor your thumb on the note that you're about to play on the string you're about to play. So, um, you know, if I do, uh, this kind of stroke downstroke on first string and then thumb on fifth string at the bottom of my downstroke, my thumb is already resting on the fifth string mm-hmm. as opposed to. In like Those your technique, you move it when you want it to hit, yeah. and you know. But like, it's just different, yeah. Uh, um, anchor points, exactly. Yeah. And the anchor is constantly moving wherever your thumb is. That's sort of your main anchor because yeah. um, it's uh, constantly touching down. And but you can't if you know if I wanted to go this note to this note, uh, fourth string, uh, pinky to third string open. I can't. I'm muting it if I'm putting my thumb past. And there are certain players who I think have adjusted their technique in such a way that they can just do that. Like I think Victor Furtado does that oh, where he, I don't think he anchors at all. I'm not sure. I still want to have him on the show. He was here this week, but he's too busy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so what I do instead, which I think is way easier uh, than that is uh, I use my middle finger cause it's right there. So if I want to do that line in reverse, I'll just do a drop thumb, but with my middle finger doing the upstroke. So, maintain the claw hammer stroke um the motion is intact but um i'm just pretending that, that is my... nuts yeah and i invented this but other people have also invented it because it's an intuitive thing to do you have that other finger it's right there it's ready to be put to work in those spots where you need to get in uh in between your downstrokes a higher note, whether that's for a rhythmic or textural or melodic purpose. And so, yeah, I've been calling it 
pitchfork banjo. And I guess this is my, uh, one of my things that I want to promote is that I have an instructional series called pitchforkbanjo.com. And it's just like a $10 a month thing and, or sign up for a year and at a discount. And, uh, I just do tutorials for old time festival jam tunes and some deeper cut stuff, uh, where I, in the advanced videos, I will incorporate this technique and, um, the way this site's structured is like, it'll be a tune tutorial. And then underneath it is a video for every single concept or exercise that you would need in order to play that arrangement. Yeah. 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 So like if there's a tune that uses, um, let's say the uh, G major pentatonic scale in the seventh and ninth fret positions, then in that underneath that in the blog post, it'll have a video of, uh, those scales. Mm. Um, so you can practice it before you actually okay. try to do it in the tune. But, uh, yeah, I use that, uh, that technique, but other people have invented similar things like Richie Stearns, oh. who is a person maybe you should have on your show someday. If he's down, I haven't had him on my show. I would love to. Yeah. I think he's really cool, but he, uh, you know, played for the horse flies and plays with Richie and Rosie now, but he, he does index finger down up picking in a similar kind of way. Um, mostly on the first string, he'll go, kind of do that um but you know but it sounds incredible somehow i do a little bit of that mostly to grab uh you know because it's hard to play you know sometimes up the neck a hammer on will get lost in the shuffle if you do a little up pick after your downstroke, then you can extra, give it a little yeah. oof especially at a slower tempo you can get a little more yeah so um these you know this would all be easier if you just switched to three fingers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you could, you're, you're allowed to to use all the, the fingers. Here, the here's the thing, though. I'm I'm definitely interested in doing that someday, maybe. Um, but the thing that I like about claw hammer is the limitation of you don't have to make decisions because it's just bang, 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 bang. That's all your right hand is doing. And if uh, there's only like you know a few ways to do. Or probably only one way to do each kind of thing, uh, mm-hmm. each melodic idea. Um, and you, you have the limitation of your hand going down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. And um, all I have to do is have the muscle memory set for, like, if I'm ascending, I'm either going to do a downstroke, or I'm going to do a hammer-on, or I'm going to do a pitchfork stroke. If I'm descending, I'm going to do... Um, a drop, drop uh, down, uh, down, and then every once in a while I'll do like a little index finger waggle to catch an extra note. But like that's it, and those are the directions. And then wow. anything past that is beyond muscle memory and is in our choices. But those are the choices that I'm making. But I I like just having all those choices already made in my, in my hands. Interesting. Yeah. So how did you discover that these, uh, sitar picks are, work well for this? Uh, my friend Armand Arrowman, who's uh, a luthier in Rhode Island and plays um, a lot of Northeastern tunes and Celtic tunes. And, and recently, uh, he plays like Clawhammer ukulele and he uses one. I was like, I should start doing that. So, uh, I, I ordered some and built up my calluses and, uh, yeah. to get a real nice clean sound. Yeah. It required a little bit of adjustment for sure. me because it's like metal on metal and it's, I have to pull back a little bit, 
but it's great because it's really loud, yeah. uh, which can be nice. On like, were you, you, know, were you just fingernail before that, or did you? I had long else? fingernails, yeah, okay. that I would use, and um, yeah, I like these, and I get my fingers back, and I can, you know, hold a baby or a lover, <laughs> you know, or cook food or. Play basketball, which is something I almost never do. But every once in a while, I want to do some sort of ball sport where I catch a ball and then I'll break a nail and then have to put on a fake one. I don't and have to do that a anymore. disaster, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, I got that from Armand Ehrman. I think other people do it too. They're cool little picks. Yeah. Uh, you can go to raincitymusic.com. I think that's just like a local uh, South Asian, like Seattle. I think they're in Seattle. Um, they just sell instruments. Of, yeah. Uh, Picks. Yeah. Supplies. Yeah. Very interesting. Specifically, like, South Asian stuff. So, yeah. Like cool. Sitar stuff. What haven't we talked about yet? Is there we talked about a uh, ton of stuff. Um, <laughs> I, well, let, let me just, yeah, say Clawhammer, old-time curious people. Check out pitchforkbanjo.com. Check out Get Up in the Cool for more of this kind of hang. Yeah. Old-time musicians and other stuff. And then uh, Tall Poppy String Band album's dropping uh, sometime next year, but I think there will be some pre-order Kickstarter-y stuff for like mixing and mastering and distribution that'll, that are happening soon, either before this is released or at, soon after, depending yeah. on when we decide to release it. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that'll be a, a discussion, too. Where do people go to keep up with the, everything you're up the to? The podcast site is just banjopodcast.com. You can listen to all the episodes there for free. And as, as you know, if, if your listeners are pretty established in uh, the Clawhammer lane, I've assured Cameron here that, that yeah. I am branching out to more and more Clawhammer guests. But I, I encourage you to, to be open-minded and, and you know listen to the bluegrass ones too. I think they're all great. Uh, but that also has links to Patreon. That's how I get support from listeners all the episodes are free but yeah. that's the way to throw me a couple bucks for my for my troubles it takes a lot of work doesn't it it takes a ton of work yeah. it's mostly a time investment yeah. you know there, there's like, of course expenses get the gear and you gotta travel sometimes or yeah. yeah yeah and editing is no joke yeah uh, it, it's tough and I love doing it but it's a lot of time yeah yeah <laughs> that's what I always say on my show I love doing this but I couldn't unless people helped me <laughs> Oh, right, yeah, right. So, yeah, totally. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, man, I really appreciate it. I'm so thrilled that we got to do it, especially because for how hectic this week can get, it's easy to just lose track of things that you do really want to do, but they just fall off the, the back burner. So yeah. I'm just thrilled to see that you were, you were here, even if slightly unexpected. It was great. Yeah, <laughs> I feel the same uh, way about my own presence here. <laughs> it's been great and good to actually meet you in person. Yeah, same. Yeah. Likewise. What? Yeah. What should we do for a, fi a final tune? Do we have one more? Yeah. Cool. Road to Malvern. <laughs> Shout out to Jim Childress. Is that who wrote this? That's who wrote I'm, this. I'm glad you know. Because I had him I, on I'm, the show. I'm awful with this stuff. Yeah, it's okay. a mo modern tune, Jim Childress. Okay. This is his like uh, his hit single in the old time world. Right. He has other great tunes. People should go check those out. Well, this is one that has crossed over to yes. bluegrass. I love it. Uh huh. Just like who wrote uh, James Bryan? Is that Farewell to Tryon? I think it was. Is that his um, name? 
uh, Mac Blaylock's uncle who who wrote it. Okay. And uh, James Bryant got it from Mac Blaylock, I think. Okay. I sure as heck don't know. Yeah. But you're good with the stuff. Sometimes. Uh, okay. I'm at least good at uh, disseminating um, di- uh, misinformation <laughs> <laughs> that I feel confident about. <laughs> yeah. Just, just say it. Yeah. Say it like you mean it. Uh, that's how I. That's how I play banjo. Yeah. Like, I don't know too. what I'm doing, but <laughs> mess up loudly. Um, I can start this with some potatoes, I guess. What, what kind of speed do you want to take this? I can do this one fast. A little bit faster? Yeah. Okay.
visit the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcasts website at banjopodcast.com, subscribe in your favorite app, and support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash banjopodcast. Please support Get Up in the Cool by sharing the show with a friend or sharing and liking the video posts on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and help fund this podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. You can order a mask, t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up in the Cool's merch store. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional claw hammer banjo series or to schedule a lesson with me. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set. It's available in all the same places as Get Up in the Cool. And again, everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool.